Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, it's good to be back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Uh, first of all, I want to introduce you to my friend and fellow mob historian, Frank Hayden. As you can see right there, uh, I know many of you, and because I've seen you on Facebook talking about the Mafia and the Machine. Well, this is the dude that wrote the Mafia and the Machine, the first, the first definitive history of the mob in Kansas City. So and, and you know my friend Bill Owsley wrote another one called Open City, but but this was the first one. And and uh, you know Frank, uh, uh, I know he was working on it at the time, and all of a sudden the both of them came out at about the same time, if I remember right. And you know Frank helped me out with an interview. Uh, if you guys who have seen my ballot theft, uh, burglary, murder, and cover up about the theft of the 1946 election, which a lot of you haven't. If you want to see it, you got to go to my website and. I can uh, I can rent you a link for a dollar ninety nine, but uh, Frank helped me out with that, and uh, you know he's just he is an expert on the mob in Kansas City. This the whole overview, you know me. I I mainly know about the skim days and the days when I was a copper, but I don't know that old history like like Frank does. And today we're going to talk about the joining of the Irish political machine and the Italian mafia and, and a man named Charlie Bonaggio that came out of it. Frank, welcome. I really appreciate you being here. Gary, thank you for having me. It's great to be on your show. So we've talked many times and, and emailed and, and that kind of thing, different things. And first time we've really had a, a show like this together. So this will be fun. Now, before we really get started, guys, Frank, tell them a little bit about the new book, which is really exciting because this is something I lived and was around during the time when this this subject uh, was was hot. So tell them a little bit about your new book. So I do have a new book coming out that is, in a way, a sequel to The Mafia and the Machine in the sense that it uh, covers the KC underworld in the 1990s. So, you know, all the other treatments of the KC mob basically end in the 80s with the skim and the, and the big takedown and straw man. So this story kind of pushes the timeline forward into the 1990s. The, the book is going to be called Mafia Dreams. The subtitle is, what is my subtitle? <laughs> it's a, it's my a subtitle is a true, a true Crime Saga of Young Men at the End of an Era in Kansas City. So it's about some young guys who were trying to break into the life in the 1990s. You, you could maybe say that they were the last generation generation these guys are my age now they're in their early 50s now back then they were in their mid-20s and could pro probably the last generation of young men really trying to break into the mafia life uh and it's a fascinating story that centers around one particular case involving uh, uh an fbi involved shooting at a reverse drug sting but it offers a window into the casey underworld of the 1990s and gary i want to uh, give credit where credit's due. You you helped me a lot with this book. You introduced me to a couple of very interesting people who I was able to interview for the book, who knew some of the major players of the, you know, knew some of the people and events that were going on that I'm covering in this book. So thank you for your help. I, I think it's uh, uh, going to be really enjoyable. And I hope that uh, all you, you fellow wiretappers out there will have a chance to read it and, and enjoy it. Yeah, I, I want you to get it too, guys. We'll talk more about it. We'll do a whole show on it whenever it comes out. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I'll tell you a little bit I know about it. We had a, there's a whole big investigation over and around this incident that Frank's talking about. And we called it the Young Italians. They, they had a group of young guys, all, most of whom were Italian, uh, all, most of whom, a couple of them were like relatives of the old school mob guys. And, and of course, you know, back in the day, the old school guys, they got, they earned their bones, I shall we say, with prohibition. Well, we've got the modern day prohibition. <laughs> we've got drugs. We've got right. cocaine. And that's where the money is. And that's where that show goes and, or that story goes. And, and I'm going to do, I've got a U.S. attorney out here that, that uh, handled prosecution on one of those guys on, on a separate, drug case. I'm going to get Chuck on here to, to tell that story about the time we do uh, Frank's story about the situation he's talking about, which is, uh, you know, it was a, it was really dramatic. I mean, I'm just going to leave it at that, guys. It was really a dramatic situation that played out on every TV screen in Kansas City before the first week or two was up after the, uh, the 
FBI shooting. So it, it was quite a quite a story. You're right. It was very dramatic at the time. Made a big local splash, and then was quickly forgotten about. Exactly. So I'm hoping that uh, this this is a very deep dive investigative story, and it goes it takes us pretty deep uh, into, the, into the backstory. And I think a lot of Kansas Cityans are going to be sort of shocked. Uh, <laughs> kind of one of those eye popping books. I got to fit in it is. Anyhow, so today we're going to talk about Charlie Benaggio, which was a, a fascinating, fascinating, interesting guy. This was a mob guy. I found some old newspaper articles, Frank, and I know you've probably seen them. Or he, the newspaper, the Kansas City Star is talking about Charlie Benaggio casually stro- strolling in and out of the governor's office, the governor yeah. of the state. That's how how far the mob got in with state level politics at the time. So let's talk, let's go back a little bit about where did Charlie Benaggio come from? He, he came from the North end. I got to assume and came up through the normal way. What do you remember about his early days? Yeah, well, I was actually born in Texas. Um, and he seems to have some connection to, to Denver also, because I know he spent some time when he was a young man in Denver, but he did grow up in the North end. And he, I believe he, uh, Godson to James Balistrieri, uh, or maybe it was Joe DiGiovanni. I can't remember, but he was a godson to one of the big, you know, mustache peak right. dons in KC. And, uh, you know, after Lazia died, well, when Lazia died, uh, Charlie Benaggio was one of the Paul Barriers. Now, now, Johnny so Lazia was, uh, he, he was really close to the Irish mob boss, uh, mob boss, political boss named James Pendergast. Johnny Lazia was his, his man in the North End, which is Little Italy. And Lazia actually had a office on the fifth floor, maybe not the fifth, the third floor police headquarters right down from the chief of police at one time. So, so Benaggio learned at the feet of the best, who was a mob boss and a political boss at the same time. So ahead, that's and that's and, and that's kind of the, the, the most important takeaway about Benaggio is is the fact that he was a he was both. Uh, and in that sense, he was unique. Um, he truly was a mafia boss and a political boss at the same time. And yes, I'm glad you mentioned Johnny Lazia and Tom Pendergast, because that whole era which is documented in my book, The Mafia and the Machine, um, really set the stage for Benaggio. You know, together, Lazia and Pendergast uh, created this machine mob alliance, which became so powerful and which basically sewed the city up tight uh, and made it the open city that Benaggio, in a way, inherited. But when he was a pallbearer at Johnny Lazia's funeral, that's sort of when people noticed, hey, this guy's an up-and-comer. Um, this is someone, you know, to keep your eye on, whether you were in the underworld or in law enforcement. Either way, um, seeing him as a pallbearer, you know, was a heads up that this was a future player in the Kansas City family. Did, did he ever hold political office at all? Was, was Oh, no, he, he never did. Hold, just like Tom Pendergast, he, he never held political office, okay. but he for a time, the most influential, the most the most powerful Democrat in Jackson County, and and Benaggio was actually known publicly as a an influential Democrat. If his name appeared in the paper, whether it was local paper or New York Times or some other publication from some other city, he was usually referred to as a, a, a Kansas City Democrat mm-hmm. or a powerful Democrat, uh, you know, an influential Democrat. That's that was his public persona even though it was quite clear especially at least in kansas city and in missouri that he was more than just a democrat he was i think he walked that line it's fascinating that's one of the things that fascinates me so much about charlie benaggio how he could do both at the same time that was uh something that happened in kansas city you know i've always said that the kansas city family was typical in the sense that you know, all the characteristics that we associate with the American mafia, we see in Kansas City. But one thing that I think sets the Kansas City family apart was it, it, it was so closely aligned with politics to a degree that that other families were not. You know, even Chicago, I, I don't think was quite as 
tightly weaved like a basket almost, you know, with, with OC and politics, as it was in Kansas City for a couple of decades. And Kansas City, the Kansas City family seems to have this, have had this unique arrangement where the old guys, the real serious mafiosi, the mustache peaks, you know, guys like the DiGiovanni brothers and James Balistrieri, James Filardo, uh, the DeLuca brothers. You know, these guys were behind the scenes, quiet, secretive, shadowy, speaking with broken English. But they understood that political power was essential to a strong and flourishing crime family. And so they put these guys out front, you know, guys like Donnie Lazio, and then later Charlie Carollo to a, to a point, and, and then Charlie Bonaggio. And they seemed, the old mustache Pete seemed to be pretty comfortable having these guys out front who were very public and who were known as big time Democrats. Uh, and so I think if Bonaggio had been in any other crime family in the country, I, I don't know that, you know, he, he would have, uh, he would have been able to become both a mob boss and a political boss at the same time. But in Kansas city, the conditions were such that that was kind of the way it worked. It, it was okay for him to have his name in the paper once in a while. And it was okay for him to know policemen and judges and, and be friends with them and drink with them and go to functions with them and that kind of thing. Whereas the old school mob guys, they wouldn't even talk to anybody outside of their little closed circle. And, and now this guy's, he's like out there. Now, did he, I mean, what were some of the things he would do, you know, to, he, he was, this was gambling times, you know, prohibition's over. So the mob goes into gambling. They have a, a wire service to get horse racing results here in Kansas City and a lot of betting action on horse races back then. And of course, local games and, and off the books casinos. And, and Nick Savella, our guy that became our modern boss, he had a, a little uh, casino like thing almost down on Baltimore. And so that's where their money was coming from. And so what did Benaggio do to in that realm? Yeah, uh, he was definitely deeply involved in gambling. Um, you know, there was a lot of drug dealing going on at that time within the yeah. family. Major uh, heroin trafficking happening in nationally, and Kansas City was kind of at the center of that. And that was during the Benaggio reign. I don't think that Charlie himself was involved directly in the drug rings, um, but... He held a position of power while all that was happening. And then you mentioned the race wire, Gary, and that was, I think, the big one uh, for Benaggio because he really helped grow that race wire and expand the reach of the race wire and, and make it more profitable. And he did that uh, working in concert with Chicago. And, and Chicago, I think, um, really appreciated that. I mean, uh, Benazio was able to use his political contacts, in fact, to get an injunction against uh, shutting down the race war. Mm -hmm. So I think Chicago looked at this, this guy in Kansas City and said, hey, man, this guy, he's got political contacts. He knows how to make money. Um, the race war, you know, when that thing was happening and there was a lot of conflict between a couple of competing services, there was some violence in some other cities. And in Kansas City, it was just smooth as can be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and Benaggio really, as far as Chicago was concerned, deserved a lot of credit for that. Mm -hmm. So here you have Charlie Benaggio in the mid-40s, who's kind of emerged out front as the face of the Kansas City mob and a powerful Democrat. And he's also expanding the rackets, not just for the KC family, but for the national syndicate also. So his his star at this time is just really on the rise, both locally and nationally. Yeah, I, I think uh, I kind of remember now, especially by the war, he they had, uh, you know, Pendergast, the 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 politics in Kansas City in 1939, there was a, a new broom sweeps clean, and they swept out a lot of the Pendergast yeah. people, but they didn't sweep out the mob guys. They didn't sweep out the first ward down there in the north end, uh, and they also reached out into the second ward and and still held a big chunk of the vote. 
So even though you've got these squeaky clean politicians that were were sweeping out some some bad guys, they had such a hold on those two or three wards down there that that you couldn't really ignore them, and they couldn't. There weren't any cases that were made on them. Made one case on Pendergast, put him in jail, but Benaggio, they didn't make any cases on him for whatever reason, and and so they had to deal with him, and and that's when he, I, I think that's when he thought he, he almost just reached ended up exceeding his grasp nationally, but that's when I think he really, you know, came into his own was during the war after Pendergast was gone. Right. And and I that's a real good point because I think Benazio really uh represented a comeback for the, the mafia and the machine because in, in nineteen thirty nine you had to take down Tom Pendergast and Charlie Carolla went down with him. Um Charlie ended up in Alcatraz. Pendergast ended up in Leavenworth, you know, and the reformers came in. And I think there were some people around who thought, oh, well, that's the end of that, you know. But it was not at all. The mafia was too entrenched. And they cleverly also, you're right, they, they maintained their grip on those river wards in the city. But they also uh, pushed out into the county, really, at this time in the 40s. And they said, well, okay, we're under scrutiny in Kansas City, but Jackson County is a different story. You know, let's let's get out into the, you know, the air, the unincorporated areas on the fringes of the city. We'll set up operations there. And that's what they did. And it worked. And, you know, it still wasn't like it was in the 30s. Um, but that was part of what the old guys, I think, charged Benaggio with. They said, we want you to Make it the way it used to be, you know, back in the 30s, the good old days. So see what you can do. And I think that was his objective, was to, to bring gambling, especially back to the to the level that it had been under Pendergast and Lazia. I think that's probably where we're going next with this, is what did he do and how did events transpire for him to achieve that comeback? I know they like they had some carpet joints out, what we call a carpet joint. It was like a country club. They had one up in Platte County, Mirror Lake. They're all out in, un- in unincorporated areas. There was one in, in south, just outside the city limits in Kansas City South. And then on the eastern Jackson County, there was uh, a lot of bars and they put uh, had slot machines in those bars. So it was they were trying to open this back up. That was his whole thing was to open it up. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, Benazio wanted to go one step further. I'm not sure if it was his vision or if it was the old guy's vision and they were just kind of using him as the means to achieve it. But the idea was to make the entire state of Missouri mm. a wide open state. It might seem like a pipe dream, the way things were in the 30s under Pendergast and Lazia and the sheer amount of corruption, you know, that was going on in Kansas City, Jackson County. Maybe it wasn't such a pipe dream after all. I think that the syndicate guys saw this as entirely realistic and entirely possible. You know, if they could corrupt the right officials, they could swing the elections, they could control the politicians, and they could open up Kansas City, St. Louis, and all the other medium-sized towns in the state to police-protected vice, gambling. And that was Benaggio's big goal. It was very ambitious. Um, and he, he went a long way. He, he came very close <laughs> to achieving it. Basically, what happened was, uh, well, I guess it kind of started before that 1946 election. And I know, Gary, you know, you, you did an entire film right. about the 46 election. And we can touch on that briefly here now. We had, we- well, hey, guys, I recommend the amazing detective series written by my friend and fellow attorney, Dan Flanagan. Set in the 1980s, the Peter O'Keefe series follows the exploits of a troubled Vietnam vet turned private detective. Peter O'Keefe encounters corrupt businessmen, cocaine smugglers, outfit mobsters, tipsters, and hustlers. In the latest installment on Lonesome Roads, the outfit forces O'Keefe to make a devil's bargain to safeguard his loved ones and uncover the truth behind attempts on his life. Check it out now. If you love thrilling mysteries, these are must-read books. I promise you, Dan gets it right. Read his books today. I'd encourage everybody to see Gary's film because the 1946 election alone as its own issue is just incredibly fascinating. Make a long story short, you know, Benaggio nominated, you know, or he got behind certain candidates that were in opposition to his, Jimmy Pendergast, Jim Pendergast, Tom's nephew. Benaggio started presenting a challenge to the 
Pendergast machine, the, the establishment, the Democratic establishment. In this 46 election, Harry Truman, who was president by now, he's president of the United States. So you've got a Jackson County guy in the White House. That bodes well for the Democrats in Missouri, which means that bodes well for the mob in Missouri. President Truman made it clear he wanted a new congressman. Benaggio got behind that movement to nominate a different congressman than the incumbent. My dear Jim, I had hoped to see you Sunday afternoon or evening. A great many friends and acquaintances dropped in. I wanted to talk with you about Slaughter. He has become insufferable to the administration because of his actions as a member of the powerful Rules Committee of the House. He owes his position on that committee to me. The meanest partisan Republican has been no more anti-Truman than slaughter. It seems that that is what confronts me, much to my regret. Slaughter is obnoxious to me, and you must make your choice. Hope your family are well. Sincerely, Harry. And he was able to do the same types of things that the guys did back in the 30s. Stuff ballot boxes, you know, ghost voters, intimidation at the polls. Basically stole the election in the primary. This guy might have won anyway. But they weren't taking any chances. So they fell back, fell back on all their old tricks. The machine and the mafia you know, more or less stole that, that primary election. Authorities, law enforcement investigated, and they seized all the ballots. And they put them in a safe in the basement of the Jackson County Courthouse. That very same night, the <laughs> demolition guys goes in, blows the safe, steals all the ballots, all the evidence. All the indictments ended up being dismissed because there was no more evidence. You know, it was this incredibly bold and brazen event that really brought a lot of scrutiny and a lot of attention to Jackson County. But in the eyes of the National Syndicate, I mean, this was great stuff, right? Yeah. And they're looking at this Benaggio guy going, who is this guy in Kansas City? I mean, he, he first of all, he steals an election and then he, he goes. Goes and steals the the evidence, and I mean, this guy's you know got balls, right? And yeah. and, and then they got a, a woman that's gonna rat him out on oh. it, and they kill her. They they murder her in broad daylight with a shotgun. I mean, it was an obvious mob hit. Uh, Mary Bonomo. I mean, it was just like crazy. She was her her boyfriend was the was the uh, nitro guy who blew the safe for him. They hired him. To blow the safe, and then she knew about it, and she she had something she wanted. She went to the U.S. attorney. She wanted to get her. Uh, actually, it was her husband. Uh, this was her son-in-law that did it. She wanted to get her husband out of the penitentiary, so she offered to give up these guys right. for that burglary of the the ballots. And then the next day, they blew her away. So yeah. I mean, that's that's how bold and how brazen they were, and got away with it. it just disappeared. Oh, yeah. Just yeah, disappeared after this. Yeah, and and I, I think so. This illustrates again that you know two sides of, of Benaggio's personality. Uh, he, he, on one hand, he's a politician who's heavily involved in delivering an election for the president of the United States. On the other hand, he's part of this ruthless and vicious organization that murders women in broad daylight <laughs> and steals. Um, you know, evidence right out of a safe in the Jackson County Courthouse with the sheriff's office right upstairs. So I think if you're, you know, if you're in the National Syndicate, if you're in New York, Chicago, wherever, you're looking at this guy saying, wow, guy's got political power and, you know, muscle. Muscle, yeah. And this is this is someone we need to be paying attention to. And then this is about the same time, you know, that he's growing that race wire racket. Yeah. Um on mainly for Chicago's benefit. Again, he's just, he's like a superstar. He's like a, a mob superstar. Now it kind of went yeah. to his head because he, he really took off then. He's, he got into the, you know, the whole statewide thing, as you mentioned before, wanting to open up the whole state. Well, to open up the whole state, you need the governor. You need somebody over the highway patrol 
and and the local sheriffs they didn't have too much worry about but you needed somebody in the governor's office or the governor and and that's when uh, this was the the beginning of his end that's that's when his uh, uh his hubris rose as they say when when your hubris when hubris rises nemesis always appears those are like greek gods and and so his hubris was on the rise and he was gonna he was gonna open up the state. Yeah, and that takes us to the next election. So we had the forty six election with the the ballot theft, and in the forty eight election, at this point, Benazio has surpassed Jim Pendergast, and the mafia is no longer subservient to the Pendergasts politically. Charlie Benazio is in charge of the mafia and the machine. First time. In history that it's happened, maybe the only time, uh, in, in, certainly the only time in Kansas City, and probably, I'm guessing, the only time nationally, where one guy occupied that role, those dual roles. In the 48 election, this is when he's reaching out to the national syndicate. This is when he's saying, hey, guys, invest in me, invest in Kansas City, because we're going to make Missouri a wide open state. You know, you guys can come in from New York, Chicago, other places, and run operations they'll be protected i'm gonna grease the skids for you and we're gonna get the job done so you had frank costello yeah. in new york investing money in charlie Benaggio. you had the fischetti brothers up in chicago investing money into charlie Benaggio. Benaggio is working closely with the lcn in st louis to make this happen and money is just pouring right into Benaggio's coffers and he's using it like crazy in this 1948 election overwhelmed his opposition both in the primary and the general election he gets his governor like you were talking about gary yeah and he's poised to make missouri a wide open state at this point he's the most powerful democrat in jackson county this is like you were saying this is the time when he's dropping in to see the governor whenever he feels like it basically he is going into the state house during legislative sessions even of you know some of these sessions are typically closed to outsiders you know if you're not an elected official you're you got no business being in there but but there's charlie benazio and he's got control over oh gosh probably close to a dozen state uh representatives and and almost as many state senators you know he can swing elections they democrats all over the state start calling him judge out of respect for his ability to be a mover and shaker within the party. He's appeared in Life Magazine and Look Magazine and other big publications as this prominent Democrat. And then they get into his underworld ties and that kind of thing, too. This is the pinnacle for Charlie Benaggio. But unfortunately for him, you know, it, it doesn't last. Now, uh, and, at this time, I mean, he's this front guy and everybody knows him. But he's got a, a a partner, shall we say, a guy named Charlie, also Charlie Gargata. And Charlie Gargata is a real deal mobster, not a politician. Charlie Gargata went all the way back to got in a shootout with a local sheriff when when he was uh, in in the middle of a mob hit of uh, Anton Ferris, I think the guy's name was, a, a bar owner, uh, the, the county sheriff pulled drives up and they get in the shootout and and you know the guy here's what he got the the sheriff saw him kill this guy right and the sheriff and i think a deputy and he saw him kill this guy and they got him they caught him and he had a gun that was stolen out of the armory over here in kansas city kansas a 45 one of those 1911 45 pistols and you know what he got <laughs> he got his final conviction in jackson county was for possession of a stolen pistol. And he did like, you know, not very much yeah. time. They couldn't even convict him of that murder. That's how corrupt Jackson County was oh. back in the, that well, time. And, and I'll, I'll just add one small detail to that story, which is that Gargata unloaded that pistol at Sheriff Bass. At the sheriff, yeah, that's right, I forgot. And it was a clear-cut case of attempted yeah. murder against the county sheriff. Yeah, and, I know. And he got off scot-free because <laughs> the KCPD fabricated evidence. Yeah. Change the gun, I think. I think they changed the change the evidence tag on the gun, and there was a corrupt corrupt prosecutor at that time who, who kept giving continuance after continuance. It was probably one of the most you know cases of if you want to ice you know just look at a case study yeah. of urban corruption. 
you That's know, yeah. with with mafia involvement, the the, the Charlie Gargata case is is perfect for that, and it goes on and on. It gets really deep in the weeds and very fascinating case. But uh, but yeah, you're right. Gargata that was back in the Lazia days, but now Gargata is Benagio's right hand man, and that's an interesting relationship because Benagio was not a heavy guy. He was not an intimidator. I mean, he was a friendly neighbor, um, you know, nothing thuggish uh, about the guy at all. I even wonder sometimes if he was even a made guy. Yeah. Because, you know, back then in KC, you had to kill somebody to, to get, become a made guy. I'm not sure Benagio was really that type of person. If he was not a made man, he was certainly an extremely powerful associate. But Gargata, like you said, Gary, he was the real deal in terms of a mafia killer. Um, and so, you know, Charlie Benagio, when he's walking around town, going from joint to joint, collecting envelopes, whatever, he's got Gargata right there by his side. And uh, Benagio can put forward that public friendly politician's face, but you know, right, right next <laughs> right to him there, is, yeah. is that menacing, yeah. you know, mafia stare of Charlie Gargata. So again, uh, you got two, both, you know, the the mafia and the machine, just again, hand in glove, right there in the form you of. You know what? Two, what's kind of interesting Charlie's. about that uh, is in modern times, uh, Pablo Escobar. They had a saying down there when they were dealing with politicians: lead or silver. Well, well, that's what we had with Gargata and uh, uh, and Badaggio. We had lead or silver. <laughs> Interesting. Badaggio yeah, like could that. reward you, you know, with like a job yeah. or business or whatever, co- county contracts or whatever, yeah. and that political connections, or you got lead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no doubt. That's I, I like that. And that's very fitting for those two, for sure. The two Charlies, they, they called them, and uh, yeah relationship for sure um, but but something happened and i believe was that uh governor of smith uh harry smith was that his name uh let's see that governor i think was forrest smith. forrest smith forrest smith yeah. so what happened with forrest smith but okay so he, yeah he was supposed to appoint a real gambling friendly police board and gambling friendly people in the state patrol and in st louis and yeah i think uh governor smith like a, a you know, typical politician was playing both sides of the fence. You know, I think he really did appreciate Benagio. He was indebted to Benagio. He understood that. Uh, I'm sure he had some respect for the the Gargata side of, yeah. of the of the two Charlie uh, mafia machine relationship. But he was able to kind of you know he he did he did do some favors for Benagio. He he made some appointments that were favorable. To Benagio, like for example, he he appointed two men to the Kansas City Police Board uh, that were more or less open to to working with Benagio. But there was two holdovers from the previous administration. He needed three out. Benagio needed three out of the four votes, you know, to really get anything, you know, make some to make some serious changes to the type of changes that would open up the city um, and the county to respect uh, to gambling. And he didn't quite have that, so. Governor Smith was able to cost Benagio a bone here and there without ever really opening things up to the degree that Charlie needed him to. And when I say needed, talking about at this point, Benagio was under a tremendous amount of pressure from the old guys in KC and from the National Syndicate. These guys had invested all this money with him. And so far, uh, the state has still hadn't opened up. Benagio was starting to get very nervous. And uh, he he had he knew that he was in a position where he if he didn't deliver on this, he was either going to have to pay back all that money or the lead, like yeah. said, Gary, or, you know, the lead was coming. At this point in the story, I, you know, I start to feel sorry for Benagio. I can just kind of feel the sense, the downward spiral and the hopelessness that he's experiencing. You know, he was so high up on top. He was just at the pinnacle of, of political power and uh, and syndicate power. And now all of a sudden he's in the hot seat and he's so close to making it happen, but he just can't cross the finish line. 
And so sure enough, we end up with one of the most sensational, I think, gangland killings in the history of the American mafia. Yeah, it, it was a pivotal moment nationwide because really this is uh, this event here stirred the uh, uh, not McClellan hearings, but the uh, uh, Keith offer. Yeah. Keith offer came out of this particular murder of the two Charlies, the murder of the two Charlies. Plus, back in those days, guys, uh, they had they would allow photographers access immediately in newspaper reports. Anybody had access to a crime scene. This was a hell of a crime scene. So tell us about that that crime scene and what happened that night. It was, it's a pretty good story. I won't go into too much of the backstory about what Nausea was was doing in you know the days and hours leading up to the event, yeah. but um, the two Charlies, Benazio and Gargata, were at uh, the Democratic Club that Benazio ran down on on Truman Road, and you know, this was the newly named Truman Road. Behind me, you can see a portrait of Harry Truman. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know so. And we've got Truman in the White House, and they've now named a, a, a prominent road in Kansas City after Harry Truman, and that is where Benaggio's Democratic Club is situated. Sometime in the evening hours, as Benaggio and Gargata sat there in the Democratic Club, which was closed, you know, this was after hours now, it was no longer open to the public. So they're in there behind closed doors and with some other people. Now, who those other people were, we can speculate. And I think Gary probably has some thoughts and opinions on that, but Benaggio and Gargata both ended up shot and killed. Uh, Benaggio got four bullets to the back of the head. He was slumped in his chair. Gargata, it appears, tried to exit, moving towards the front door, was shot, I think, also in the head. This picture, you know, which is in my book, really did cause a sensation. I'll see if I can just kind of hold it up to the camera. Uh, it's pretty small. Here, but yeah. um, you know, here's the picture too with uh, sorry, right here with Charlie Gargada's corpse, blood oozing out of his head, and a giant portrait of Harry Truman <laughs> looking down at the crime scene. Yeah. Now, if you're a Republican, <laughs> it's gold. This is this, this is like a gift from the gods. I mean, yeah. here you've got a gangland, a sensational dump. Double murder. I call this the double murder at the Democratic Club. Yeah. I, I've also heard it referred to as the, the murder of the two Charlies or the killing of the two Charlies. But the double murder at the Democratic Club with Harry Truman looking down at the crime scene. And the implication was that Truman was closely connected to the Pendergast machine. That was no secret. And so, um, you know, the star was more or less, believe it or not, Republican at that time. Yeah. And uh, they sold this picture, you know, to every other newspaper in the country. And the implication was, hey, the political corruption and the mob connections in Kansas City go all the way up to the White House. And that was the implication. Now, uh, personally, I don't believe that Harry Truman was mobbed up. <laughs> uh, I think he was an honest politician. And uh, he was he never uh, denied that he owed a lot to Tom Pendergast. Um, very, very little evidence, though, to suggest that he was in tight with the mob. However, um, this caused such a, a stir that it forced Truman to get behind this Kefauver investigation. He had opposed it up to that point because he knew it was going to make the Democrats look bad. Yeah. Because, um, you know, there was so many connections between the Democrats and the mafia nationwide. Um but after this event, Truman could no longer oppose it. He said, yeah, we we got to do this. Go ahead, Mr. Senator Kefauver, and do your investigation of organized crime in interstate commerce. So the double murder at the Democratic Club in Kansas City is what led to that pivotal event. And um, as many of the wiretappers know, that Kefauver hearings exposed the National Mafia Syndicate like it had never been exposed before. And that's when people really started to understand what this thing was and what was going on in the major cities in the country. And it was uh, very shocking to most people who thought of crime as a local affair and never really thought that there was this 
sinister national syndicate working um, behind the scenes to swing elections and to uh, corrupt labor unions and to make millions and millions of dollars through illegal gambling and prostitution and all the racket. So that was the legacy of the double murder at the Democratic Club. Yeah, and, and then another event that that fired people up was at the time, that's when TV first came in. And so I understand that the these PFOFR hearings, you know, they were televised, a lot of them, and and people were buying TVs just to see the Kefauver hearings, <laughs> and this became like uh, on a national basis. Every major city in the United States, people were looking at their local mobsters coming, and and they were showing up, and they were being mobsters. You know, they were refusing to answer questions, taking the Fifth Amendment. Nobody ever seen that before. They just hear about this stuff. You know, I you know I bought something that fell off a truck. You know, to them. It's kind of cute and fun, or you know, I they've got gambling over at that one place, and and you know, I, I went down there one time, you know, that kind of thing. But now all of a sudden they see, as you say, the, these connections that these guys got and the connections into the government, and then they see them face to face. They see what they look like, you know. Say so a guy like Joey Gallo with his shark skin suit and and white tie and, and the sunglasses inside and that kind of thing. They see yeah. the face of the mob. Well. Yeah, or or Frank Costello's hands, yeah. right? Because that was he somehow Costello's lawyer got an injunction where the uh, TV cameras couldn't film his client's face, yeah. and so they filmed his hands, and he's <laughs> very expressive in that typically Italian way, you know, yeah. where we a lot of hand gestures when he talks, and so cameras focused on his hands, and that image was one of the most uh, really. Uh, lasting images in the history of television as far as i'm concerned yeah. you know because like you said it was at the very beginning when television was just catching on and that unusual image of frank costello's voice accompanied by his hands really <laughs> was fascinating to, to many people and then of course unfortunately the tv cameras didn't the tv didn't get involved until after the kc here uh, because if they yeah, had i had not seen bad. that i wondered yeah, it's it, it's it's really unfortunate because we would have got some great footage of these KC gangsters, especially Tony Gizzo, Fat Tony Gizzo, you know, counting his money. <laughs> yeah. At one point, tell folks, the, tell you got to tell folks that story. You got to describe yeah. that scene. Do you remember that scene? To ask him about how much money he had. And yeah, you know, it was the they asked him about the mafia, and, and he kind of slipped up a little bit and sort of tacitly admitted to the existence of the mafia. And then he kind of tried to backpedal. And then one of the uh, senators said, oh, I, I understand that you tend to carry a lot of cash around on your, in your pocket. And he said, you want to see it? And he pulls out his roll of cash and just starts counting out hundred dollar bill after hundred dollar bill, you know, right there in front of the cameras and, or, and the senators. And there's a good picture of that in my book too, which is that's the, that's yeah, the book cool. right there. But uh <laughs> Uh, during the war, if you remember, Paul Rica and uh, Cherry Nose Joey, Charlie Cherry Nose Joey, and uh, little Louis Campagna, and, and several mob outfit bosses out of Chicago got caught up in extorting money from Hollywood uh, producers and the unions out there. And it was a national thing. They all went to jail. Well, Harry Truman had uh, his attorney general, Tom Clark, who he will later make an, a, a Supreme Court justice before he leaves office. Tom Clark is the U.S. attorney, and those guys all get out in about three years, and, and there's a lot of supposition. It was a big scandal at the time that Tom Clark is the one that gave the final approval to let those Chicago outfit guys out after about, I think, a little less than three years in the penitentiary on a 10-year bit. So, uh you yeah. know, it, it, politics and the mob, uh, they don't have that anymore. That's one reason they don't have any power. Back right. then, they had power because they had political connections. They could get out the vote. They could get you elected, as we found out in 46, or they could make sure you didn't get elected. Uh, it was, yeah, and, and I would argue that, that that alliance between organized crime and politics reached its pinnacle in Kansas City yeah. in the late 1940s under the reign of Charlie Ignacio. Yeah. Someone in New York or Chicago might want to argue with me. And I, <laughs> I'd love to have that conversation and I'm sure they would have a lot of good points. Yeah. Um, but, but I, I do believe that that was the case and fascinating chapter 
of the overall Kansas City story. And and I, I think that it represents not just the pinnacle of, of politics, but also the high watermark of, of the mob's influence in, yeah. in the United States, you know, during about 1950 or so. So and then we, you know, from there, you get into a brief reign of Tony Gizzo as boss and then into the Sevilla era, which... Right. Is it's whole, whole a whole another world, a whole another era of, of uh intrigue yeah. and, oh, and yeah. fascination. That was, that was that, the next the next generation, shall we say. It's a whole other story there. Nick Savella is a young guy at this time. Right. Dur- during the murder of the two charges. Oh. A lot of people ask me if you know, well, you think he was involved with it? And I've talked to Bill Owsley and you know, he doesn't really think he was probably involved. He he, he thinks it probably a guy named Black Louis Congolosi. And, uh, oh, God, who was, uh, all of a sudden, I've lost the names. One of the other guys who was involved in the, the uh, burglary of the Jackson County Courthouse. Oh, uh, like that. Uh, Thomas Simone, I think. Tommy Simone, yeah, Thomas yeah. Simone, Highway Simone. And and so people yeah. like that, because Kansas City, it was their job. It was their man. It was their job. That didn't come from outside. That was, right. uh, that was approved of on the national, by the National Crime Syndicate, of course, the commission. They approved of it, but then... They go to they come back to Kansas City and say, you know, you got to take care of this, and you know they had to. Kill yeah, and there was at that time uh, the family was probably had a dozen different guys that could have could have yeah. done that. They had so many heavy hitters at that time. Uh, I've heard speculate, you know, those names that you brought up, Gary, but I've also heard yeah that Nick Savilla probably did yeah. the deed, and and that's how he really you know made his bones and got got on the fast track to leadership. That seems like a very plausible theory to me. Yeah, it, it no, and I wouldn't be at all. I would not be at all surprised if if Nick was in that room. Uh, See, you know, somebody that, that they were comfortable with had to be in that room. Yeah, there was no signs of a struggle other than right. uh, Gargata trying to run out the front door. Gar- last uh, minute, Benazio yeah. was just sitting behind his desk, all right. relaxed. So they right. met somebody there that they were comfortable enough to right. be in that room with. Tuffy DeLuna was 23 years old at yeah, the time. He was point. trying to make a name for himself. Yeah. I know that Jimmy Duarte was was a suspect yeah. in that double murder. Uh, he was interviewed. He was taken into custody and interviewed over that. But they never did no. find out who did it. Their murder remains unsolved. Well, you know, in all fairness to those guys, we've never solved a mob murder in Kansas City. <laughs> There's never been a mob murder that's been solved. <laughs> Except one time some... Uh, uh, some guy hired some other outsiders to do a murder, and and they took down that one kind of mob associate with them. But the outsiders, they'll break every time. So Gary, uh, you know earlier, well, it's probably the topic for a whole another podcast. But I was curious about the Deluca brothers, and because they seemed to, you know, they were players behind behind the scenes yeah. guys, mustache peats more or less, who were were probably you know pulling strings behind the scenes during the Benagio era, but I think they were still around at the time that you were investigating things. And I just was just curious if you ever had any dealings yeah. with them. No, I didn't. Not at all. Uh, I mean, uh, Nick Savella and Tuffy Luna and Cork Savella, they were front and center. They're the only people yeah. they were the face of the mob to uh, right. law enforcement during by those years, by 1970s, late 60s, early 70s. Interesting, though, how even then, even in the 70s, some of these old guys were still around. Yeah, Joe Filardo. The Luca brothers, Filardo, and you figure, you know, Maybe they still had some influence, certainly. Um, Tano Lococo. Yeah, we used to see uh, Filardo, Joe Filardo and Tano Lococo, which were, and the DeLuca brothers and uh, Dia Giovanni. And they were like the old sugar house syndicate that cornered all the, the, the sugar in order to, you know, the prohibition. They were pretty young at the time. And and those two, we used to see those two guys together. Uh, Filardo, who had a, uh, a bakery and uh, Tano Lococo, Used to see them together a lot. They would ride around together. So they were, everybody, the word was they were like, you know, if they needed some advice, you want some advice, you know, about what was going on. I never forget, I, I followed them in. I just saw them going to an office building downtown. So I just parked and jumped out and went in behind them, got in the elevator with them. They were going up to a lawyer's office. There were these two little old, like four foot 11, dried up, little sticks of men that were once these <laughs> giant mafia feared mafia guys you know go yeah. bigger 
I mean, Florida was at Appalachian, for God's sakes, with Nick Savella. So, you know, it was really, it was a, it was a surreal experience for me being on the elevator with those two old guys. <laughs> well, and, and I just, if, if I could just, as we wrap things up here, I'll just mention that uh, Panel of Oko, you know, I believe it was, he died at age 98. Yeah. In, in, in about 1993, 1994. Again, we get back to who's carrying the coffin, right? And, you know, <laughs> yeah. So you were talking about the young Italians, yeah. and I know that uh, some of those some of those young Italians were carrying the coffin of Gaetano Lococo, yeah. um, and some of those guys are the ones who appear in my next book, yeah. Mafia Dreams, right. which uh, will be out. It'll be out in about uh, six weeks, I think. Okay, we'll get you. I'm really looking forward to coming back on your podcast because, uh, you know, I definitely wanted to de debut this book on Gangland Wire because you were so helpful with this book, Gary, introducing me to, to these people that I interviewed for the book. And uh, you've been super supportive, so I really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and folks, by the way, the last man standing out of those young Italians just got out of the penitentiary from this murder we talked about and the FBI shooting. Uh, he just got out of the penitentiary. He's out here today working at a used car dealership. He'll be real interested in this. I don't know if you've talked to him since he got out, but he's oh yeah, you're talking. Uh, you're talking about Mike Albanese. Albanese, yeah. And uh, he 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 participated in in my book. He was he was willing to be interviewed, and uh, you know I, I I really appreciate him for that. Uh, he was very candid, and I'm not saying that he you know uh, admitted to very much. Um, <laughs> no, but. Uh, you know, he has his perspective and uh, he was more than willing to to share it. Yeah, he did 25 and a half years yeah. in prison. He went in at the age of 25 and got out at the age of 50. And yeah, he, he really represents the, that group of young Italians who um, had their own mafia dreams back in the <laughs> 1990s and got wrapped up in this fascinating case, which involved a, a murder and a drug sting and, um, a lot of legal interesting legal implications. I, I was able to uh, speak with the lead agent uh, on the case too, Agent Ron Halter. He was also uh, very gracious and willing to share his memories and experiences. So we've got really good perspectives from, from both sides. Again, uh, thanks for letting me mention it. All right. Well, yeah. Frank Hayde and, and the book is The Mafia and the Machine that I know a lot of you guys know about because you mentioned it on uh, Facebook every once in a while. A lot of people have read it, and I think a lot of more people will probably read it after today because it is it is a uh, a, a beautiful, well-done, well-documented overview of Kansas City Mafia from the Black Hand days to the modern era. So it's I really appreciate you doing that and going to all that work, Frank, and and for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you, Gary. See you next time. All right. Well, guys, sure. don't forget, guys, don't forget, I like to ride motorcycles. So watch out for motorcycles when you're out there. And if you have a problem with PTSD, be sure and go to the VA website and get that hotline if you've been in the service. And if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, you're our good friend, former Gambino man, Anthony Ruggiano, is in the treatment center business down in Florida. And he's got a hotline on his website. I think it's reformgangsters.com or something like that. Just, just start looking for Anthony Ruggiano. So uh, thanks a lot, guys. And uh, we will talk to you all later.